I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Reported Russian missile strikes in Kyiv as the United Nations chief visits the Ukraine war zone to see the price paid by civilians. Meanwhile, President Biden seeks a multi-billion dollar war chest to help Ukraine fight Russia as Moscow warns the West not to test its patience. We need this bill to support Ukraine in this fight for freedom and our NATO allies, our EU partners, they're going to pay their fair share of the cost as well, but we have to do this. Price shock as consumers face soaring food and energy bills, with inflation starting to bite and the carbon tax increase just around the corner. One shocking energy bill came up in the dial earlier today. This morning I received a copy of an electricity bill from a constituent. Her bill has gone from €123 Euro to €3,385. Euro. Are you feeling the biggest squeeze on incomes in a generation? Do let us know on Twitter. That's hashtag tonight, VMTV. First tonight, our economics correspondent, Paul Colgan, is in San Francisco in California covering a trade mission by the Tanishta. Leo Vradker, um, Paul, the US President Joe Biden is seeking a multi-billion dollar war chest. It's a significant uh, increase in funding from Congress to help the Ukraine fight this Russian invasion and a massive amount of money. Uh, it could clearly prolong the war in Europe, which is already causing a global economic shock. Well, I suppose the bad news for Ukraine and the bad news for the rest of the world is that the US president clearly believes that this conflict is going to last a considerable period of time, months, potentially years. That was the warning from the NATO chief today. So Joe Biden is asking Congress to release $33 billion in aid to Ukraine. The vast bulk of that will go towards military assistance, around $20 billion. There'll be an additional $8.5 billion or so in terms of economic and financial assistance. And then the remainder will go towards humanitarian assistance and food security. But that is a bad sign, I suppose. This thing is not going to be wrapped up, certainly not according to the Americans anytime soon. And it's going to continue to feed through in high energy, high food costs and it's going to have an impact everywhere. Europe will feel the, the cost of it. It seems now that we're approaching the end of the phony war when it comes to gas and Russian oil. The, Ger the Germans seem to be in a position to bring in an oil embargo, not a gas embargo because they depend on it so much for their manufacturing base. But it does seem that it's coming and we haven't seen the full impact of it yet in Ireland. Those gas prices don't reflect what's happened in Ukraine over the past couple of months. We'll only see that later in the year. So it's uh, something that's going to be with us for a while yet. And I know they're not particularly concerned by this, but speaking of the impact of the war of 
on, uh, from Ukraine. The US economy itself contracted in the first three months of this year. Yeah, putting aside what's happening in Ukraine, we really are at a turning point after a decade of very loose monetary policy, trillions of dollars and euros being thrown at global, at the global economy. We're now in a situation where we're seeing very high inflation. Inflation here in America is running higher than it is in Europe, and they talk about it all the time. U.S. consumers and politicians are obviously very sensitive to rising petrol prices. It drives them demented when they see the price of gas, as, as they call it, going up. And that is independent of what's happening in Ukraine. They're not reliant on Russian oil and gas. They have an inflation problem. The Federal Reserve is trying to deal with it by putting up interest rates. And I suppose the next wave in the cost of living crisis at home will be when the European Central Bank does the same. And it seems that the markets are pricing in a number of interest rate hikes later this year. And that's going to feed through to, to mortgage holders, to homeowners in Ireland, on top of all the additional costs they've seen. Interestingly, in the States, there's this debate going on about the having to sacrifice perhaps full employment in order to deal with inflation. Deutsche Bank said the only way to deal with this sort of inflationary environment is to have a good old-fashioned recession. And we saw the, the, the national accounts here for the first three months of the year. The American economy contracted by almost 1.5%. It's the first time it's done that since the start of the pandemic. So they're having a debate here about whether they should let unemployment go up in order to bring inflation down. And that's a debate that we're going to have in Europe as well, presumably a little later in the year. All right, uh, Paul Colgan, uh, thank you for speaking to us this evening. I'm joined on my panel this evening by Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey, Sinn Féin TD Claire Coran, Irish Daily Mail Executive Editor John Lee and News Talk broadcaster uh, Andrea Gilligan. Uh, you're all very welcome to the programme. Um, I want to start off, John, with you because, you know, I'm listening to what Paul Colgan is saying there. I'm listening to him talking about, you know, the US economy contracting in the first couple of months of the year. And yet we had these CSO figures today here in Ireland uh, looking at retail sales. And they seem to suggest that inflation wasn't having this big impact on consumer spending, particularly in the first three months of the year, which is what it really looked at, um, that maybe people would have expected. Were you surprised by them? Um, I was confused by them hmm. because um, there, there were a lot of items there that um, went up in usage and price but I don't know how much of an effect they're going to have in long-term inflation, which is with us to stay, I think, for the, for the moment. So there, there, was, there was matters like spending in bars, footwear, clothing, all that kind of thing. People maybe have been splurging a bit after the pandemic when they, they physically didn't have the opportunity to go into shops, go into pubs and other things. That's my amateur assessment of it. But the long, speaking to people in government, the long-term effects on inflation are going to continue to be... Um, areas that they, the government cannot really intervene on much further, which are housing costs, um, uh, fuel and, um, and general household price uh, increases, which are, which are going to spiral to the end of the year. I spoke to a couple of ministers before I came in. I always do that before I come on the show, you know, just to give you the, the, <laughs> the, the, the fresh reports. And what they, have, what they said to me this evening in relation to inflation and fuel costs is that there will be some form of respite over the, over the summer, which there traditionally is in the, in the sleepy world that is Leinster House, that things will slow down in July, the jaw rises. Um, in tandem with that, we have less spending on heating your home, um, less spending on, on, on other things we require to fuel the energy of a household. Yet we have a budget in, 
in uh, October, which will see further, by the way, carbon tax rises. And then all those, uh, taking in what Paul said there about um, gas prices from Ukraine and all those other issues, hitting the political establishment like a bolt of lightning in October and November. How does that then sit with the predictions that inflation was going to hit the highest point this summer of 8.7%? As I remember, um, the uh, ECB said last September that they expected, and they told our government, and they said publicly they expected inflation to start decreasing by, uh, by Christmas and into the new year. That didn't happen. I recall writing stories in January about the then escalating fuel and inflation issues that the government was facing. I was briefed by a cabinet minister on what lay ahead. Say this was January, and he said, we can intervene to a certain point. Um, We expect things to cool down in the early part of the year, the first three months, but I'll always recall this phrase, all bets are off if Putin invades Russia, which he did. So I think all... Inflation is historically notoriously difficult to tackle for any government. It really has to take a natural cause. They can't predict a natural cycle. They really can't predict when that cycle will end. And they've resolutely failed to do so in this instance. And I don't see any check to price rises in every area for the next few months, if was, not the next year. Uh, Andrea, it was interesting looking at those figures today because they were particularly strong when it came to department stores, cosmetics, pharmaceutical, but there was weakness when it came to areas like food and beverages, and perhaps that's because that's where we are seeing um, that inflation hitting right now. I think so, Kieran. Like, you know, in particular, you talked about, um, you mentioned the, the pubs, um, the social stuff, it's the food, it's the, the cigarettes, the social spend, and that all feeds in, I think, to that whole conversation around the cost of living that we're, you know, we're, we're having on a, on a, I'd say, a daily basis nearly at this stage. Um, I see it myself on the, on the radio programme. It's the kind of stuff that, it's the, it's the disposable income that people have in their pocket. Um, and with the whole concern and the issue around the cost of living and the discussion around the rise in fuel prices and energy costs that we've had in recent weeks, people are just, they're pulling back they're not in the pubs, they're not eating out as much. I mean, absolutely, figures are up by comparison to where they were at this time last year. Obviously, no surprise in terms of the, um, the restrictions haven't eased. But even by comparison to where they were in February of 2020 in a pre-pandemic era, they're, they're even down again. And we see that from the CSO stats out today. So I don't think it's any major surprise um, you know, to see the likes of your, your food, your, your, your retail, your, your bars, all down marginally in the last month. Because I think people are terribly conscious and probably to a certain extent I see it maybe in my own age demographic it's it's the people that are out maybe at the weekend you know that have got the chance to go back out again after lockdown eased and there is that pullback now that's happened because cost of living is something that is massively in in people's people's ears like Uh, I'm joined by Damien O'Reilly who's a lecturer in retail management uh, at TUD Um, Damien I want to come to you because um, we are talking about um, the decline in sales and food and beverages and the increase in the costs of our shopping basket. What has gone up? By how much? And what else are we going to see um, the prices hiked on? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer now. If we were talking about grocery stores, for example, you're talking about the big supermarkets carrying 15,000 different items. So we don't have time in the programme to go through the, the increases in the, all of the products. But none, just, just to say that, you know, um, 
Food inflation has been decreasing since 2008. So food prices are down 8.5% if we look back from 2008 until now uh, since the recession. And that's partially driven by uh, the limited assortment discounters, the Aldi's and Lidl here, who've driven down prices on certain categories uh, and targeted certain categories over periods of time. Example, the 49 cent for your vegetables, for your carrots and so on. Uh, they've also targeted other sectors and also what's happened is that supply chains have become very, very efficient. So to counter what the discounts are doing, the bigger retailers, the, the Tesco's, the Dunn's, the Super Values, um, they've streamlined their uh, uh, supply chain. And we can see just, uh, you know, that uh, reach, these big retailers will have maybe four to five days stock on the shelves. And, and that's kind of witnessed by if we went back to the beast from the east, is that we saw once the snow came and transportation stopped, is that the supermarkets ran out of goods very, very quickly. So that's... So uh, across, sorry, but that, that's groceries. I just want to look at sort of other items like clothes and shoes and cosmetics, electrical items. Are we seeing price hikes there? Or are they going to come later in the year? Yeah, we're seeing price hikes there, but we're also seeing them coming later in the year because of input costs have gone up. And what we have in the fashion industry is a quick response. So we respond quickly to what happens to changes in fashion. With the grocery industry, because of what's happening is that it's easy if I sell 100 tins of beans today, I'll probably sell 100 tins of beans tomorrow and the day after and so on. So it's easier to forecast and we have very much to just in time. So these are very, very streamlined and they make very you know low margins on these compared to the, uh, uh, the fashion retailers. So the gross margin for... Uh, uh, a retailer, the, the typical supermarket is probably around 20%. Whereas if you look at the uh, gross margin for a fashion retailer, it can be 40, 50, 60%. So there are two different um, uh, categories that we're looking at. But input costs have gone up significantly. If you look back at retailers and they've been taking price increases or price increases have been uh, put in since Christmas, so the major manufacturers and suppliers into the, 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 the retail industry have been saying that we're putting prices up and we're giving you four or five weeks notice or two months notice to say that these prices are going up. So this was happening before the uh, Ukraine war. <coughs> Ukraine war really exacerbated the price increases and it's exacerbated uh, fuel costs. It's exacerbated supply chain difficulties that we've seen uh, throughout the world, which has happened since the pandemic. So we can see that even the the Suez Canal and the, the, the ship getting stuck there is, you know, these container ships, some of the big ones are carrying 24,000 containers. So to get them shipped from the Far East to here is probably taking about eight weeks. And 24,000 uh, units on board, 24,000 containers means 24,000 trucks. And it means unloading. And that's 3,000 men by three days by working, you know, uh, 24 hours a day to get these uh, uh, tr uh, containers unloaded. And what's happened over the, the period of time that we've since the pandemic is that containers, empty containers have got left over in the West right. and they're shipping them back now to the East uh, empty. And, and this is actually adding to the cost that we have at the moment. So I don't see any change in uh, the inflation over the next uh, coming months. In fact, you know, as, as was said by the panel there, you're expecting inflation to reach 8 9% in the uh, summer months. And this is this will continue, and the the, uh, the the supply chain will be disrupted, and costs will increase, and inflation will increase, and we will still have this until the end of the year, I believe. And um, Claire, 
it sounds when you listen to Damien there um, and listen to our panel, it's been difficult for people over the last couple of months, but the next few months, the autumn, the winter months, is actually probably going to get tougher because the price hikes we've seen in our energy bills, in our food costs, in beverage costs, but when it comes to those other items, clothes, shoes, electrical items I mentioned, pharmaceutical costs, they're going to, you know, the, the, the price hikes are going to trickle through into those in the next few months. Yeah, so I mean, unfortunately, uh, it's probably nothing positive coming down the tracks. I think there was an expectation after COVID-19, people had saved up, there would be spending after COVID, but then obviously we came into this cost of living crisis and now the energy crisis as well, which is getting worse. And while people will maybe spend less on heating their home in the next few months as we come into the summer and hopefully the weather improves, we will see that then into the autumn and into the winter and we could face a harder winter than even the winter that's just gone. So there is going to be a lot of pressure on workers and families. And I think there'll be a lot of pressure on government when it comes to the budget as well, because there will be important decisions to be made there and priorities to be made as we come into the winter period. And energy crises will no doubt have increased and continue to increase between now and winter as well. Carl, would you accept that, you know, when it comes to price hikes, the worst is still to come? Well, certainly with the war situation and the situation with the cost of oil, for instance, and definitely I think as long as that persists, the uncertainty alone will drive up prices. But I think that alongside what was already said in relation to COVID, and probably there's a bit of a splurge there that has happened that probably has, has drove up prices a bit when people got out after COVID and people started to spend. But that with the war, with the uncertainty. And then I suppose the whole situation that was mentioned by transport, like the transport issue has been going on for a number of years now, where like the price of containers from, from let's say China, that has gone up fivefold in the last, the last two, three years. So all these factors are feeding in. And I think certainly the point that, certainly from looking at it from the energy perspective, there is a sense that over the summer months, there won't be as much energy being used and there may be an opportunity at another level to, let's say, but build But it's not just about energy anymore, is it? No, but the, see, everything else is a factor of energy. Food is a factor of energy. Like food, if you like, is a factor of fertiliser, which is made from, from gas. So, so all different sectors are really a factor in, in so many ways of energy. And, <coughs> and they're also a factor of the insecurity that's there that people don't know, and, and that in itself is, is driving up costs too. I'm also joined live by Neve MacDonald from the Dublin charity Spark, that's single parents acting for rights of kids. Uh, Neve, thank you for joining me. In terms of your outgoings, uh, Neve, and the outgoings of your members, how have they changed over the last couple of months? Uh, yeah, I suppose to reflect on the page and what people are saying, before there was always financial struggles and a lot of it was about housing and maintenance payments. For instance, 55% of all homeless families are one-parent families. But now what we're seeing on the page, it's about hunger, it's about cold, and it's also about not being able to plan. As, as a single parent, your life revolves around planning, your life revolves around being able to meet your bills because you uh, live on a single income. You have to provide housing, you have to provide food, you have to provide childcare, you have to get your, to school, clothes. Everything is based on one income. That is normally a small income and it's normally a fixed income. So you plan week by week, month by month. And I heard some people there on the panel talking about summer being a respite. It's not a respite for single parents. At the moment, the electricity bills, the gas bills are probably in the red. So people may try to get them back up to zero if they're lucky. 
Previous summers, you might be able to put a little bit aside to get ready for the children to go back to school. August is like Christmas. It's one of the most expensive months because you need to get the uniforms, the schools, every bags, everything back to school. And those prices will be increased as well. So single parents, we don't get a respite. So and I think and also we were in energy poverty prior to this crisis and the government don't have an energy poverty um, strategy. In 2016, a strategy was supposed to be put in place and it didn't. And the, um, the latest reports that you can see is the ERSI, along with the uh, Ireland um, in 2021 and the Growing Up in Ireland study, they said one in seven lone parents experience energy poverty. And lone parents are more likely to experience energy poverty. And with this, it causes increase in mental health and increase in physical health for both children and parents. So, um, and in 2020, Ireland had the highest energy crisis across Europe. Yeah. Now, the government is talking about just um, targeting and measures, but they don't understand what they're targeting because they haven't measured it in the first place. You do not know the, the extent of the energy poverty prior to this crisis. They talk about giving money and they did give money and we acknowledge what they did, but it's not enough. And they don't understand the impact that has had right. because they don't understand what they're dealing with in uh, the first place. I want to put that back to my panel. Look, there are a lot of competing interests, a lot of people people say and they're pushed to the wall. We hear um, Neve there speaking on behalf of um, single family parents. We hear from older people saying, you know, they're choosing between turning on the heat and eating a dinner. Everybody is screaming for more help. Who would Sinn Féin prioritise? Because, you know, I think you'd accept you can't help everybody. Well, look, lone parents are one cohort of people out there that are on fixed incomes and that's a problem because they are on a social welfare rate, like all of the weekly social welfare rates that are set well below the poverty line. That's a problem in the first instance. It was mentioned there, lone parents, a lot of them live in energy poverty. We know from the latest data, a lot of them live in consistent poverty, more than 20% of them, nearly half, experience deprivation every okay, day of who, the week. So lone parents are one group of people we need to prioritise, along with all of the those who are on fixed income. So we need to look at all social welfare rates. We need to get them to the minimum essential standard of living. That's carers, that's persons with a disability, it's lone parents. And at the very least, any social protection system should protect those who rely on and it from poverty. what would that cost? Ours doesn't. So it's going to cost, we would do it over five years. It will cost about €2 billion euro to bring every single payment in line with the minimum essential standard of living. But we have to do this because at the moment you have lone parents, you have widows, you have carers, you have people with a disability receiving a rate that is about €40 euro below that minimum essential standard of living. And that's not social protection. Any social protection system should protect those who rely on it from poverty. Okay. Ours doesn't. And that's one priority that we absolutely have and we must see in the next budget. Um, Colm, I just wanted to pick up on a point that um, Paul made about rising interest rates um, in the US. It seems inevitable that the Eurozone is going to follow. Do you think this sort of 1% increase by the end of the year, that that's actually what's going to happen? That's reasonable. That's inevitable. Well, I'd imagine with the, with the level of inflation you're looking at, there, there is going to certainly be, be steps taken. And I suppose that, that is going to add more pressures into the situation. There's no doubt about it. But I, I would think that, that, that it's inevitable that there will be interest uh, hikes. And, and by what amount? When what are you hearing? Well, there, I am not hearing that much at the minute, but I, I would imagine it's, it's, it's that, that 1% would probably be the, the upper end of it now. I think uh, certainly it'll probably come in a couple of... Look, we're talking quarter of a percent of that in, in the short term, I'd say, but, but I would think something in the region of that. And it, it really depends on what happens over the next couple of months as well in terms of the, the, the macro situation. Uh, John, do you really feel the government are going to have to intervene again? They, 
they said in January that they they couldn't, despite the urgings of their backbenchers and the main body backbenchers are in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, to deal with the excise duty. They were to, ministers told them at their respective parliamentary party meetings all the reasons that they, they couldn't deal with excise duty. They are doing that. They, they said they couldn't deal with, um, with VAT. They have now gone to Europe to get a further derogation on that. There would be something done with VAT. In my experience covering politics, and I was, I, I was there in Leinster House during the crash, every time we're told by the government they can't do something, ultimately a way will be found. I think what, what this principally centrist government is doing its best to avoid is intervening in the housing market. And I go back, and I know there are a lot of ancillary um, issues here when it comes to price rises, but the, the main drivers are, are going to remain fuel and housing costs. Um, the big step they have to get over is um, rent freezes and intervening in the property market on, on a substantial level to deal, with, to deal with that inflation or it's going to continue. I cannot see a situation where we get to next um, October's budget where they don't um, exceed to some of the um, um, demands that Clare's party will make on social welfare. They will have to do that. And if you go back to last year's um, uh, bu- budget, sometimes people laugh at Willie O'Dea, for instance, for advocating a, a rise in um, the pension by a fiver every year. Had, had they moved on pensions, then, there okay. we, then we would be in a better position now. All right. Uh, my th- Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thanks to uh, Damien and Neve. My panel is staying with me. And next, one of the big burning issues of the week. I think you can probably guess what we're talking about. The government survives the turf vote. Stay with us. The government may have seen off the opposition votes on turf and carbon tax, but the heated debate around this week's big issue of turf reignited in the doll today between Green Party leader Eamon Ryan and Sinn Féin's Pierce Doherty. What number of deaths would we, should we tolerate? 
What should we do in ignoring that reality across the country? Do Sinn Féin accept the legal advice that we've received? Please a answer the of question in terms of turf. Do, do you know what you're planning do, in do terms Sinn of turf? Do Sinn Féin accept the legal advice? And if not, what's your solution to the problem? What are you planning to do? Well, my panel is still here with me. Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey, Sinn Féin TD Claire Coran, Irish Daily Mail Executive Editor John Lee and News Talk presenter Andrea Gilligan. So the heated debates, excuse all the turf puns, um, continue. All you got them, did you, John? <laughs> I, we appreciate I, I'm that. Throw, I'm going to throw all mine away now. <laughs> I had a long uh, line-up. John, what is, what is the fallout from all of this, do you think, for the coalition? See, I don't, I, I don't think there's been any resolution to it. So the fallout will come. Um, there was surprise in government this last couple of weeks that what is a small issue, and let's be honest about it, there's a small number of people affected here, badly affected, but it is a small number, when we have far bigger issues to deal with when it comes to the environment and use of fuels and everything else. There, there, there are further rises in carbon tax, we mentioned earlier on, to come to come in the coming months. There's a budget next year which will flag one for next year, um, for, for um, October for next year. It's felt it was sloppily dealt with. Um, we had a, a lot of heat and light then from uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs about how angry they were, yet they were offered a chance by um, Clare's party to uh, vote against government policy last, last night and they didn't take it. So, like many things in rural society, whether we like it or not, cutting turf is going. Um, there's no way around it. Um, and I think... Uh, going because it's a dying tradition or going because the government's going to intervene? Fossil fuels, are, for both, uh, f fossil fuels are, are going. So the government have said that they were to go in September. Micheál Martin has, behind closed doors thus far, I haven't really seen it said officially, but we've been let, let to, uh, left to gather that it won't happen this year. That means it's going to happen next year. So in the term of this government, those commitments to ending the widespread use of turf and cutting it will go. And I haven't seen a resolution offered this week. Eamon Ryan has said we are not ending um, whole scale cutting of turf, yet he hasn't actually exactly what he said there. Is he I quite isolated there, do you think, John? When I say sloppily handled, Eamon Ryan was in a coalition before, but it wasn't with two large centrist parties. Um, I think he answered a, when I say sloppily, he answered a PQ back in early April, um, probably too honestly, where he may have left a sleeping dog to lie when it came to turf, that he, he probably wasn't nuanced enough in, in explaining what was to happen. But he... His party and it sort of would, feeds it, into this it, accusation, doesn't it, that the Greens don't understand rural Ireland. Now, whether that's true or not, that's an accusation that the opposition make all the time. I, I think, and I don't want to be unkind to Eamon Ryan, he's one of our most enduring pop, um, um, politicians and one, most, uh, one of the most successful. Um, he, has, he has said some odd things when it's come to rural Ireland in the last couple of years since the general election. He spoke about the... And, uh, you know, these things were said, much facetious and all as we can be about them. He spoke about reintroducing wolves. He also spoke about carpooling in uh, rural villages. Anyone who knows rural Ireland well, as many of us do, that's completely impossible. Um, but this clash has to come. Whether, whether we li like it or not, there are traditions in rural Ireland that are no longer acceptable. Hair coursing, uh, um, th those kind of traditions are going. And turf 
is to go. And I think the government has been disingenuous about a lot of this. How many people really go out in the, go out in the bog on a weekly basis and, uh, and use their turbary rights? There are, and just to finish up, there are commercial turf cutters using other people's turbary rights, using rights to... to to sell turf, which is their right. But if their business is to be stopped, they will have to be compensated. And I think that's the big issue they're all, they're all dodging around. Uh, I think what was interesting, Andrea, was, first of all, this wasn't meant to be a climate issue. This is meant to be a public health issue. Yeah. But there are much more serious, impactful, you know, climate change issues and changes we're going to have to make in terms of agriculture, in terms of transport policy, perhaps a lot more contentious than this. And yet we can't get turf over the line. I think that, you know, in the last couple of weeks and probably in the last three or four in particular, when you just chat to people, and, and I'm from Donegal, and it's not that, you know, Donegal isn't, isn't anti the environment, but there is this sort of perception of this kind of divide. Um, and I think nowhere has the divide between urban and rural Ireland probably been as apparent as it has in recent weeks actually over the issue of turf cutting. Because in something that is perceived to be this sort of um, kind of archaic tradition, in, in many very urban, suburban areas. Uh, a lot of people at home would be terribly familiar, as, as Kira, I'm sure, well, you'd know as well, with, um, with, with cutting turf. And I think what, what a, the government, in my opinion, and just from chatting to people even on the show, like just your normal Joes, you know, I think what they've failed to do is actually get the communication around this right. And they've failed to get the balance and act between the health concern and an environmental issue. And it's been on this seesaw for about two, three weeks of kind of this flip-flop, flip-flop. And I think that actually has become a big problem for them. Is that, you know, it's just consistently flip-flopping and a total comms failure, I think. Yeah, and and as uh, you were saying, John, right now, Colin, we have no resolution here at all. We've no resolution as of yet, but I think certainly there's a, there, like, uh, I think the, the, the Fine Gael uh, TDs, if you like, backbenchers made it quite clear that there's, there's a need for a number of other considerations here as well. Like, if you look at it in the context of, in Dublin, 60, over, I think over two thirds of people are connected to gas. In the region that we talk about, the Northwest region, I think it's 6% of people are connected to gas. So you're like, equally you have to give people alternatives. You can't just switch it off without the alternative. So, so like, there probably, there, there is an issue where I think that it needs to be taught out more at government level. There's no doubt about that. And also there has to be recognition that turf cutting is, is reducing anyway. I think organically it's gone down by about 10% every year. So over a reasonable period of time, I've made a And yet... I think there's a worry that, if you like, and it's probably, it's a green agenda, I suppose. But there's a, there's a concern here that there might be an overplay on, on what turf, the impact of turf. Like, we've issues with coal, we've issues with the, with the other fossil fuels. And I suppose... In, in the current climate, where we're looking at the cost of everything else rise, the timing probably isn't great either in terms of, of, of few, uh, let's say, the, the cost of fuels. So I think it's a concern. It's a bit like reference that we made of other things that were said by, by the Green Leader in, in the last year or two. Like, probably wasn't the best approach to it. I think when the government as a whole takes a look at it, they'll recognise... The, the, the broader context, the broader social context, if you like, and the need to put other things in place before you actually... And uh, your party today accused the government backbenchers, Fine Gael and Fine Foyle backbenchers, of political cowardice, because you said they had an, an opportunity to vote against bringing in this ban, and they didn't. 
Yeah, well, I mean, look, that's one of the greatest frustrations is when local TDs are on the ground telling their constituents one thing, they're on local radio, they're on, in local newspapers, they go to Dublin then, they didn't even show up for the debate. I mean, there was three ministers present at the debate at different times the other evening. There was no, no, no TDs, no backbenchers, nobody else was present in the chamber to let alone listen to the debate or speak to it. So that's one frustration, definitely, in saying one thing and then coming to Dublin and doing the opposite. This is an, a matter of importance to people in rural communities, full stop. And if but you the rural independents today and yesterday came out and said, actually, Sinn Féin's jumping on the bandwagon here too, because you said and when it came to uh, carbon tax that you wanted it just paused and now you're saying you want it scrapped. So you're inconsistent no, in your position as well. Perhaps you don't understand these issues. No, no, I understand the issues. I, we have a bog at home. We cut turf every year. I go to the bog every summer. I understand the issue inside out. And in relation to the carbon tax, last night, the rural independent vote on the carbon tax removal which is the motion they brought forward, that wasn't voted on. What was voted on was the government amendment, which we opposed. We've been very clear in relation to the carbon tax. And let me be clear again, we do not believe the carbon tax should be increased. And for people in my community... So you just think it should be paused? It, it absolutely should. And I mean, look, the carbon tax in 2021 brought in about 600 million euro. 200 of that has been spent on energy efficiencies. That's all, not the entire amount. If we spent what we were bringing in in 2019, about 400 million, if we spent all of that, then we needn't increase it at all. But there is a difference difficulty here, particularly in rural communities, we do not have the alternatives. We can't jump on a bus or jump on the Lewis. We don't have the alternatives. And for people that have a lot of money, the carbon tax is irrelevant. They can retrofit, they can buy the electric car, they can do all of those well, things. Well, the government has said for it's people, offset that carbon tax. Yes, but I mean, give them with weeks. one hand and taken with the other. Um, John, did the turf <clears throat> row give a bit of political cover for this carbon tax? Because it's coming in now on uh, Sunday, I believe. Well, it, it, it was... Um, it was a row that was unseemly. I don't. I don't see what political cover it, it, it has given them long term. Yeah, it's 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 taken us away from the bigger issues and a bit like the inflation. We concentrate on smaller issues, but there are there are maintaining issues. What minister said to me tonight before I came out was that if we can't handle this very very small area, and I say it's a small number of people, it's a small amount of money, it's a small amount of fuel, a fuel that is is dying. How are we going to handle the big ones? And we have got probably until March uh, 2025 for this government to run. And all these issues will have to be dealt with. And of course, if Sinn Féin are in power uh, in a few years' time, they themselves will have to deal with these, um, these compromises that have to be made in a, co a coalition government. Um, Do you expect to see more tension like this? Because we, you know, they had this really united front around COVID. COVID's gone now and are, you know, we're all bets off. Well, absolutely. I mean, you, you look at the difficulties that um, um, Stephen Donnelly has, only, has run into in the last few weeks ago, and in, I was on this show a year ago, a lot of people criticised me for giving him Politician of the Year, but um, absolutely, they're okay. going to have to deal with the old canards of, um, of uh, infighting in a coalition government. All right, uh, my thanks to Colm and Claire. We're going to have to leave it there for now, but Andrea and John are staying with me and coming up after the break, this week's big news stories. Welcome back. Well, just before we look at the other big news stories of the week, a reminder about a new documentary here on Virgin Media One on Bank Holiday Monday by Virgin Media News correspondent Richard Chambers. Uh, he looks at London's role in housing Russian billionaire oligarchs. <laughs> The 
most important was to understand who killed my husband. If I get arrested and sent back to Russia, I'll be killed. All of these oligarchs, they love this idea of being an English gentleman. Russians love Chelsea, and Russians love Kensington, and who doesn't? Putin has gone full Soviet police state. That's the background he comes from, and that's what he's rebuilt. Well, that documentary, London Grad, Putin's Billionaires by Richard Chambers, can be seen at 7pm this bank holiday Monday here on Virgin Media One. Well, Andrea Gilligan and John Lee are still with me and I'm also joined now by radio broadcaster Adrian Kennedy. Adrian, you're very welcome to the programme. Uh, we're going to start um, with, I think it's going to be a, a bigger story as the months go on, that's KBC and Ulster Bank leaving the market and the impact that this is going to have on its hundreds and thousands of customers. Um, the central bank warning this week, basically the banks, you better be ready for this. And they're not. And that's the real worry. Um, and in fact, anecdotally, over the last couple of days, I've spoken to a number of people who are trying to move their KBC or Ulster Bank account to Bank of Ireland, to AIB, and they're really struggling. They can't get appointments. Uh, they might be looking for an appointment at lunchtime when they're on their lunch break, and it's just uh, a mess. All the while, though, the uh, fintech companies are really making a march uh, because the young people who may have accounts with KBC or Ulster Bank are quite happy to do their business with uh, N26 or uh, Revolut. And a number of people that I've spoken to over the last couple of days, particularly in the, the 20s and early 30s, are very happy. They don't want an overdraft. They don't need credit. Um, Maybe if they want a mortgage, they'll have to go to the bigger banks. But they're very happy to operate with, with those companies. Uh, but the central bank particularly pointing out more vulnerable customers and I think really a warning to KBC and Ulster Bank, you need to look after them and you need to perhaps, even though they didn't say this, consider delaying leaving the market yeah. until um, these customers can all be taken care of. Like you're talking about somewhere in the region of about 900,000 account holders. Uh, to be sorted out within the next year. And and let, yes, work has been done and I know they're introducing this kind of round table uh, discussion to try and get all of the bank chiefs to sit down together and discuss how to do it. The reality is though that the central bank, only the regulator within within recent days had to say the um, that they were going to do a sort of an audit again of um, an anonymous audit effectively of the phone service where, as Adrian mentioned, like, you, you know, you call up the, the, the whatever number to change your account or see about, you know, changing your direct debits and all that stuff. And people are talking about ages they're spending, mm. hours waiting on this queue to get onto this phone line. And the central bank are saying, like, you know, the whole discussion around the customer service, the in-branch service, all the stuff that in particular older, vulnerable customers look for, they're sitting there on a phone waiting for long, lengthy periods of time to try to get through to somebody. And the central bank have actually come out and said, like, that's something we're going to, we're going to have to look at anonymously again and, and assess the length yeah. of time people are waiting for. And John, we have no sense at the moment of how many people have successfully transferred, how long the transfers are taking. We have no sense of where the banks are at in this. No, but so, someone today I saw did a kind of a straw poll. I think it was Charlie Weston in The Independent that um, if there are a million people to, to move accounts, as there appears there are, 100, only 105 new accounts, 105,000 new accounts have been opened so far this year. So that's some way of estimating how far behind they are. I, thought, I interpreted some of what the central bank 
said as meaning that they will force KBC and, and Ulster Bank to remain in the market until people have a facility where they can move their bank accounts. But I think anyone who, who has tried to move bank, banks or as I recently tried to do, was open an account for a particular reason. It's far, far more difficult than it was when I first started out banking, which was going to the bank, sign a document and they gave you a bank account. It, it, there are lots of flags that seem to come up and it takes months and months just to do it with your own bank if yeah, you were to open yeah, and another one. it's quite cumbersome if it's online, you're not speaking to somebody directly and it's, it's just quite a slow process. GDPR? A major problem. <laughs> um, speaking of Twitter, I want to move on to Twitter. Elon Musk, it appears, the world's richest man, wants to buy Twitter. Does anybody have any concerns? Does anybody care who well, owns Twitter? The, speaking to your researcher, Sai, earlier on, I, we kind of had a, a chat about this, that if you ever do with, with friends in a pub um, who aren't in the media a little straw poll as to whether they're on Twitter or not. Rarely they are. I think, and this is my assessment of it, there's a bit of an obsession in media circles and political circles with Twitter. And I think it's given a greater weight than it necessarily should. Last time I looked, more, more people got their news off Facebook, for instance, than they do off Twitter. It's, it, and if you work in Leinster House, it's an unhealthy obsession um, that there is with Twitter. News programmes have given it a lot, a, a lot of weight. I would wonder... Um, especially since Donald Trump isn't on it anymore, how much, how much weight Twitter actually carries in the, amongst the broad population on, on Earth. But then well, that's again... that's one of the things, isn't it? Is, is Trump going to be brought back? I but mean, he actually said the other day that he doesn't want to. He's setting up his own company. He wants to look after himself. He, he <laughs> specifically said he doesn't want to. My biggest, my biggest thing with, with uh, Twitter, and it's something that Elon Musk kind of touched on the other day, was this notion of uh, verified accounts. Mm. And the blue tick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think yeah, he's obsessed with Twitter bots, really isn't he? To get yeah. open a bank account. And uh, because it is a cesspit um, at times with, with anonymous accounts just constantly trolling. I've stopped using it because I just got fed up with constantly being trolled. It never bothered me, but it just became too much like hard work. Like, I think, and I agree with you, John, on that point. Like, when you talk to, you know, normal people or non, you know, news people, we obviously all use it from, particularly for work purpose, and, and I would an awful lot with the show and stuff. But, like, when you just talk to normal people, it's Instagram, it's Facebook, like... Like, it's, it's not a, a non-media thing, I think, an awful lot of the time. So why did he buy use. it then? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? And, and I suppose the timing of it as well. Why purchase it at, at this stage? I mean, we'll, we'll find out over the coming weeks. I know, I know there is a kind of a whole discussion around the anonymity of Twitter um, and whether or not, like, absolutely, look, there needs to be more regulation brought into it. But probably now is the time than ever before where there has been so much discussion around regulation and, and bills and social media sites and Twitter that that's why I'd, I would sort of wonder and question myself, why, why would he look for yeah, it at this he's stage? he's not really the guy to do it, is he? Pardon? That's not really what he stands for, is it? Regulation well, of free Twitter? Speech well, rich men want to control the message they always have from, from Randolph Hearst to uh, other people in, in, in other countries um, have always sought to purchase media empires. He has obviously determined that this is the new way of controlling the message. I, I, I think the genie is out of the bottle when it comes to controlling data and news in the world. I, and I don't necessarily th um, think it can be done then with Twitter, but maybe he's a rich man with too much money to spend. Oh, what a wonderful way to live. <laughs>
What a wonderful position to be in. I, I want to move on to another story. It was your sister paper in the UK that broke it last Sunday. And this was this um, anonymous source within the Conservative Party who made an allegation against Angela Rayner, the deputy uh, leader of the Labour Party, that she sort of uses her body to distract uh, Boris Johnson. She has said that she asked the paper not to print the story, um, that, you know, that it, it should never have been given uh, an airing. Ethically, would you have any issue with that story being aired, John? I would, I would firstly say I can't speak for the, um, the edition of the Mail on Sunday that is um, published in Britain. Um, it's a separate editorial process, a separate, separate editor. Um, wh- whether I would do that or not, is well, it, it's open to me to interpret the facts of, of what um, I was presented with. The sources, there has been an interchange between the House of Commons, the Speaker, and the paper about their, about their sources. They have been summoned um, by Speaker Lindsay Hall, the, the, the Mail on Sunday, to, to speak to them about it and refuse to go in. Um, it's a different political area. Um, would I have written that story uh, ethically? Um, I wouldn't be in favour of writing stories about women in that, in that, mm. in that sense, personally. It's interesting. But I would, would also say that it is not up to me to publish something as a political journalist. We have an editorial group, an editorial board, people more senior to me. They will decide um, whether to publish that or not. This decision was made in London to publish this article. They have um, faced down widespread political uh, condemnation from all sides and they have to deal with that and answer it, answer to it in a respectful manner after they investigate what exactly happened. Yeah, and there's another story during the rounds, I think, today about um, a Conservative MP unnamed watching pornography in the House of Commons and that's been reported, I think, um, by two female Conservative MPs. Do you think it, it begs a question on the culture within the House of Commons in the UK, doesn't it? It's a very And the role of women in media, or a role of women in, in politics, rather, uh, whether you can feel safe in politics. As John said, it's a very different landscape, British politics, compared to, to what we uh, have here. I think we've a much more friendly type of political system, uh, even though it's, it, 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 you know... Fighting all the time, there, there, it is much more civilized than what we don't tend to expose stuff like this. I don't even see the point in a story like that with no particular sources being uh, identified. Yeah. Uh, Andrea, there was a story today about uh, more and more women choosing to leave political life because they don't feel supported because of the abuse that they're f- feeling online, and probably because of stories like this. Yeah, and I think, you know, Kira, we're going to see an awful lot more of that, um, which I think is a very sad thing. And it's a sad thing for, you know, when we come up to the next set of local and, and general elections. Like, politics is an, it's an incredibly tough, tough game. And I, I genuinely think, and I know politicians get a hard time, and, and sometimes, you know, like, when in terms of their policy and discussion in the doll and all of that, rightly so. But on a personal level, it's, it's an it's an awful, thankless job. And I think, you know, Twitter and the social media sites in many areas are, are big part and parcel of that too. Uh, well, our we treatment didn't... of women politics, politicians in Ireland is, okay. is, has a lot to be desired as well in the political sphere. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. That's all from us. My thanks to my panel. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. But from us, good night and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.